1: once again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City. Uh, a lot to get to today. It's going to just be you and me, I'm afraid, uh, as is often the case with poker players. The special guest that I had booked for today Had to cancel on me at the last minute, but that's okay. I have a lot of topics I want to get to. Uh, Coming up on the program today, I want to talk about the Global Poker Awards and all the outrage (laughs) currently surrounding them. Uh, Also want to delve in a little bit to the recently released Venetian Deep Stack Extravaganza. Schedule that came out for this upcoming summer. Uh, Update you guys on what's been going on with me in the aftermath of my crime victimhood, which, you know, of course I'm overstating it. You know, basically somebody came into my hotel room a few weeks ago in Vegas and took some of my things uh, of all the crimes uh, to have happened to you. I think that's the one uh, that hurts the least. It's just stuff. I'll get. Other stuff, and it's it's only stuff. Uh, yeah, so we're also going to review a couple of hands from the late stages of last year's World Series of Poker main event. If you're like me, you're starting to get really excited uh, about going to Vegas this summer. And I want to talk about what happened on the final table bubble and get into that a little bit. Uh, that'll be at the end of the episode. So, a lot to get to. First off, let me just say I'm fine, everybody. Uh, we, I really appreciate all of the um, love and attention that so many of you have been giving me after I shared the story last week with Alex Fitzgerald, the assassinato. By the way, guys, if you haven't listened to that episode, Uh, That man is just so fascinating and and so interesting uh, to to uh, have a conversation with. Um, We talked about a lot of things. And one thing that came up was the fact that I my hotel room was burglarized in Las Vegas uh, a couple weeks ago. I'm fine. I had a little trouble sleeping for a few days. I don't really care about the stuff that I lost except for the fact that I was worried about identity theft and and things like that. But I think I've got everything pretty well taken care of at this point. And now it's just a matter of kind of losing that feeling that someone's going to enter my home or whatever hotel I happen to be staying in when I'm doing comedy. Um, But I'm fine. It was more of a psychological impact than a financial one. Uh, I'm fine. and, And I really appreciate everyone reaching out to uh, express their concern and their sympathy for me. Like I said, this wasn't the worst crime uh, to have happened to you. Of course, no crime is fun and thank you. Uh, Also in that conversation with Alex, I think it's good to listen to that episode more than once because uh, he's so brilliant and he has so much to say and he says a lot in a short period of time Um. One of my big takeaways from speaking with him is that, yes, GTO is important. And striving to play a theoretically optimal poker game is a great idea. I mean, that's the fundamental approach that we should all have. If you have no reads on your opponents and you don't know how to exploit them, Then falling back on an unexploitable strategy of your own, which is what uh, game theory strives to be, is a great place to start. And I think that we should all be thinking in those terms as we work on improving as poker players. Uh, With that said, keep in mind that when you play live, especially when you play live, You have more information than just I have no reads on my opponents. And Alex really gave us a lot to think about in terms of how to get a quick first impression kind of snap judgment read on your opponents. Uh, One thing that he said last week was that he likes to get there early so that when his opponents slide their passports across the table to identify themselves to the dealer, Alex likes to make a note of what country each of his opponents is from and try to use that information to develop a profile of how that player uh, might view the game and what kind of mistakes he or she might make. So right away we can start to deviate from the mathematically correct GTO Uh, theoretical approach and start to employ some exploitative play uh, right off the bat. If you haven't listened, please go back and listen to that episode. I think it's one of our best and that's saying something because I'm pretty proud of a lot of the episodes we've done. All right. Um, Let's get into this uh, GPI awards. So, First off, let me let me just tell a quick uh, little background on, on myself. Growing up, my father was a jazz musician, and he actually played on a few recordings that were nominated for Grammy Awards. And for me, that was so cool when I was a child. And I said, hey, Dad, isn't that great that, you know, this album that you played on is, is nominated for a Grammy? And he said, listen... You uh, don't get me wrong. It's not that I'm not excited that we're being recognized because I am. But at the end of the day, I don't make music to win awards. And that's not what it's all about. Uh, If you're an artist, you're not trying to get awards. You're just trying to create art. So. My view of award ceremonies in general has probably been skewed by my father's viewpoint on having albums that he worked on being nominated for the most prestigious award in music. Honestly, he didn't seem to care that much. The reason being, that's not why we do it in the first place. Uh, What awards can do is draw attention to works that, otherwise might not get attention. Um, especially when it comes to like something like a Broadway musical, uh, being nominated for a Tony award can kind of put a musical that was underappreciated on the map. Uh, certainly a lot of the movies that end up being nominated for Oscars traditionally are not the movies that everyone was already going to see. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, it's all marketing. These things are just designed to help somebody make a buck. I'm not saying that about the Global Poker Index Awards or the Global Poker Awards, whatever they ended up calling it. And I I realize that this uh, little diatribe has the potential to come off as sour grapes that this podcast was not nominated. But believe me when I tell you, it isn't i'm never looking to win awards for my work um i'm actually uncomfortable with the idea of people choosing one over the other i believe in the more democratic system of reviews and word of mouth being how uh, something gets put on the map you know in the particular case of the academy awards the oscars uh, the companies behind those films basically bribe the judges. Uh, you can do some research on your own and you'll find that I'm right. Like the the best picture does not usually win best picture. Uh, what they'll do is they'll send copies of the film to the voters with uh, something that they call for your consideration. Now, this might come with a bottle of fine champagne or perhaps a gold-plated uh, car- handsome carrying case for the DVD, maybe even take that person out to an expensive dinner, uh, hoping that he or she will watch my film and, of course, get cast a vote for Best Picture. So it's a bribery and reward system, which, again, I'm not making a comparison with that and the GPI awards. I just think that... When we get caught up in what a few people who vote think, we run the risk of getting bogged down in something that, at the end of the day, is just not that important. Similar to your high school student body president election, it just comes down to who is the name that people recognize. You could even potentially say that depending on which side of the aisle you sit on, about the recent presidential election. Uh, One thing that our current president had going for him when he was running for office is that it's a name Americans have known for 40 some years. So that's my take on that. I know that some people who do a lot of Twitch streaming uh, were particularly upset that People were nominated for awards who haven't done Twitch streaming all year, but they're just famous. So in that sense, I would say that it's similar to your high school student body president election. uh, We're just picking names that we know. In many cases, the voters aren't even familiar with the format of Twitch streaming or podcasting or whatever. So it's obviously a very subjective process, and not something for anyone to be up in arms about. Um, My basic take is that awards are stupid, and if you win one or you're nominated for one, you should just say it's an honor and thank you for thinking of me and it's great to be recognized. And if you don't win one or if you're not nominated for one, uh, that really doesn't take away from the quality of work that you're doing. So, that's enough about that. Let's move on. I want to talk about the recently released Venetian Deep Stack series, whatever they're calling it now. I know I was joking a few weeks ago with Andrew Brokus about how I think the name Deep Deep Stack Extravaganza is a pretty silly name. Um, Whatever you want to call it, the Venetian has... A very, very good schedule every summer uh, for the last several years. Um, I know that it's a controversial thing for me to say that I'm planning to play there. I know for some of you, um, Sheldon Adelson is Satan incarnate. And uh, because of his opposition to online poker, we should all be avoiding him and everything that he profits from. But Uh, I don't really have that strong of an opinion about politics or online poker. Uh, For me, I just want to have a good experience and have a chance to win a lot of money. And I do have one first place Venetian trophy uh, on my bookshelf. So that is something that gives me great pleasure to to reminisce about winning and hope to win another. Um, The schedule came out. There are a lot of tournaments on it. Uh, a lot of guarantees. So what the Venetian has that distinguishes it from the WSOP is the marketing of the tournaments as part of this extravaganza. They all have guarantees. So when you sit down to play in a tournament, you know that the prize pool is going to be X amount of dollars and you can kind of extrapolate from that what the minimum prize payout for first place would be. Uh, Typically, it's somewhere around 20% of the total, uh, kind of depending on how many players they get, of course, but that's a good general range for most Venetian tournaments. So that will help you make up your mind about whether that's where you want to spend your time. Uh, We talked about this a little bit with Andrew Uh, a few weeks ago but I want to just reiterate for me there are a a number of factors that go into where I decide to play Uh, obviously I want to find a good tournament with a good structure and hopefully a lot of recreational players Um, you will find that all summer in all the venues the fact is that If a tournament has 3,000 entrants, not all of those entrants can be world beaters. There just aren't that many great players in the same casino at any given time. So obviously with a large field, I can generally expect that I won't be the worst player (laughs) at my table for the most part, uh, which is nice. So the other factors are comfort professionalism, how the whole thing is run. And I have found Venetian and Wynn to be uh, much more pleasant places to play. I've picked out a couple of tournaments that I want to enter. There's a $3 million guaranteed tournament uh, the weekend of June 4th. Uh, I'm probably going to fire a bullet or two into that, it's uh, eleven hundred dollars to play. Um, uh, that one looks great to me. Um, the following weekend on June 9th, there's a 500,000 guarantee with uh, two starting flights, and that's also eleven hundred. I'll probably end up playing in that as well. Um, And then they're doing something really fun kind of toward the end. They're calling it Summer Saver. And that is uh, a catchphrase that I like a lot. I guess it's been about five or six years since I had had a really rough summer at the WSOP. And I was basically about to go home loser uh, for only the first time in the At that point, six or seven years I'd been playing, and I entered a $600 Venetian tournament and won first place for something like $28,000, which got me into the black. (laughs) It saved my summer, and it was the best, the sweetest part about it was it was on the day before my flight back to New York to go home. So if I didn't do well in that tournament, It was going to be a negative summer and then, you know, obviously making the final table and then going on to win the trophy uh, felt great. So I like the idea of having uh, a summer saver in on the schedule just in case things don't go well. And they have quite a few of these uh, toward the end of the summer. Um, They're usually eleven hundred dollar buy ins with million dollar guarantees. And there are several in uh, early to mid July. So if things haven't gone well for you, you might think about going there and trying to save your summer. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited for the Venetian schedule and, the, of course, the Rio schedule. I expect to play something like 25 or 30 tournaments this summer, and I'm really gearing up for that. Working hard, studying my TPE videos, reviewing hand histories from last year. Uh, not only hands that I played, but hands that I've watched on Poker Go or wherever else poker hands are shown. Which brings me to last year's World Series of Poker main event. Now, we've been covering uh, kind of painstakingly over the last several months hands that were played in that tournament. And uh, when we last left our heroes, there were, I think, 12 of them remaining out of the 7,800 who, who started the event. So, we're down to... Now, I want to jump to the unofficial final table, which, if you don't know, that, when they get down to 10 players, they actually all sit at a 10-handed table until one person busts out, and then they call it a day. And then the official final table is actually only the the nine players remaining. Uh, which I believe they had maybe one day off in between last summer, as opposed to the November 9 concept, which is uh, now a distant memory. So what's been going on of late is that we have an overwhelming chip leader, Michael Dyer, with 10 players left. He's got something like 30% of the chips in play, uh, almost reminiscent of, of a uh, Joe Meehan from a few years ago where he just had all the chips and he's been a a big stack bully. Uh, he's correctly assuming that his opponents don't want to go bust right before the most important final table in the whole world. And he's been taking full advantage of them. Uh, some would say he got too far out of line. I really like the way Michael Dyer played throughout day seven He had a big stack, seemingly for the entire day six and day seven, where I'm not really sure how he got all those chips, but once they started covering him, it was clear that he was not shy about using them. Uh, I believe that one exploit you can make of most of your opponents, particularly in the main event, but perhaps in high stakes tournaments in general, is that... People don't like to go broke right before the final table. Uh, it's the second biggest bubble. The The actual bubble being the biggest. Uh, right before the money, you can get away with murder. Uh, but right before the final table with 12, 11, or 10 players left, it just seems like players make ridiculous folds. And I've been thinking about this a lot because, I of course, I'd love to get to a World Series of Poker final table, and I haven't gotten to my first one yet. But when I do, I imagine that I'd like to be the chip leader, or one of them at least, when we get there. And the way to do that is to take advantage of players' reticence to get involved in big pots, especially for all of their chips, right before that final table bubble bursts. A moment ago, I said that I've never made a World Series of Poker final table. Uh, Several years ago, I did participate in a 1K. Actually, it's the one that Jason Somerville won his bracelet in. And with two tables left, uh, I had a good number of chips and tried the strategy that Michael Dyer employed um, in the main event last year. I was trying to bully people. I was trying to take advantage of their reluctance to get involved in big pots right before the bubble. And I ended up going out in, I think, 15th place. But anyway, I made the final two tables. I probably had enough chips to fold my way to ninth place. And then I would be able to say, I've made a World Series of Poker final table. But in this tournament there was something like $500,000 up top, which is just insane when you consider the buy-in was only $1,000. So I was thinking about that prize, which is kind of my general approach, perhaps to a fault. Um, I don't ladder as much as some of you do. Uh, I play for first because I want to win lots and lots of money. And, One luxury I have is that I don't rely solely on playing cards for my income. So whereas to you, the difference between 15th and 9th might be whether you can stay in action for the rest of the year. To me, it's just a a difference in a few thousand dollars or a few tens of thousands of dollars of income. Uh, Not to say that I don't care about the money because I do, believe me. But I think you guys get the point. So anyway, uh, in that particular tournament, I ran into a bunch of big hands. But even with those big hands, my opponents had trouble calling. I remember a guy almost folding a flush to me when I was trying to represent the flush. And I made a big bet on the river and I had him covered. And he really considered folding it. Uh, he took about three minutes to call last to act on the river when I had bet enough to put him all in. And he had an eight high flush. It just felt to him that uh, there was a good chance I had him beat. The board was not paired. So he's basically putting me on a nine high flush or better if he folds. And he did eventually find the call, but it was an agonizing call for him. Whereas I think at any other stage of this tournament, it would have been a much easier call but I think he was sniffing out that final table. We all want to be able to talk about how many WSOP final tables we made, how many bracelets we've won, etc. And I sort of leveraged that uh, against opponents that I think I can can get away with doing so against. Uh, It didn't work out for me that time. I think I ended up getting 15th place. Um, No regrets, of course. But I do think it's a a very important strategy. And so watching Michael Dyer employ that strategy throughout day six and day seven of the main event, I was kind of cheering him on because it's nice to see someone have a big stack and not be afraid to use it and put pressure on his opponents. So let's get to how to play against a big stack bully. Uh, This is a very non-standard hand. Let me start off by telling you that with 10 players left, we saw something that I consider extremely non-standard. So this hand comes from the 250,000, 500,000 level with a 75,000 ante. Because we're 10-handed, there's 1.5 million in the pot. And... The action goes uh, three folds to Aram Zobian, who opens to twelve a one point two million. He's only got fifteen million behind, so that's interesting. He's opening for middle position with that stack. Uh, Michael Dyer, the aforementioned big chat, big stack bully. With something like 90 million, uh, three bets immediately on his left, directly to his left, to 3.4 million. And everyone folds back to Zobian. Now, Zobian has an M of 10. Um, let me count his big blinds uh, 30 big blinds. So uh, I think it's odd for him to call here. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, by the way, guys, we don't know what these players had, so we're going to be discussing this hand in theory. Spoiler alert, we're not going to see a showdown. Um, Zobian should have a really tight opening range here. Uh, the It's one of the first hands. It might have been the second hand played at the unofficial final table, ten-handed. And Dyer should know that. And so when he three bets, he should theoretically have a very strong range. The problem for Zobian is that he can't put Michael Dyer on a strong range. The guy has been an absolute animal for two days straight. And he's been the quintessential big stack bully leveraging other people's um, desire to make the final table. Or to climb the ladder against them time and time again. He knows that people are aware of laddering. And he's taking advantage of that. By trying to exploit them into folding too much. So with that in mind, should Aram Zobian just shove his entire range? i mean, assuming he's opening a tight range. What's the worst hand he should be opening uh, from third position at the full 10-handed table with only an M of 10. Like, to me, I think he should be folding pairs below eights, all suited connectors, all suited aces. Uh, he really shouldn't have a bluffing range pre-flop. in my opinion. He should have a strong range. I think ace... 10 is a fold. King, queen is a fold. Uh, You just don't want to be getting involved because look, when he puts in 1.2 million, that's almost 10% of his stack already. And with so many players yet to act at this full 10 handed table, it's a mistake for him as the short stack or one of the short stacks uh, here at this table. Yeah, there's only one shorter stack and that's Tony miles, at this point in the tournament. So for him to be uh fooling around would just be a huge mistake. And even I, who tend to uh ignore ICM considerations, wouldn't be fooling around. So that said, he should have eights or better plus ace jack plus and probably no bluffs. So I think shoving that range over the most aggressive players ever. Evers three bet is probably profitable, but is it something you want to do? And that's the problem for Zobian. He makes the call, which I really don't like because now we've basically put 30 or yeah, 3.4 million. So the three bet from Dyer to three point four two five million, and now uh, Zobian makes the call with only twelve point two million behind. So I really don't like this um, passive play unless Zobian is slow playing a monster. So maybe he's got pocket aces, but even then, I think shoving and expecting to get called a lot is fine because. Dyer certainly has uh, a weaker range than we do, but because our stack is so short, we're probably going to get called and be in a good position for a double up. Now, this isn't to say that Dyer will never have a hand, and perhaps Aram Zobian is concerned about running into that hand, but I think with the way this guy has played, he deserve. He has earned the right to get paid when he has it. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, you know, maybe that's just me. Maybe you guys disagree. I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this, especially because we don't know what anyone had, but we do know that Zobian calls, and now there is about eight point five million in this pot, and Zobian has only. 12.2 million remaining behind. So, uh, the SPR is like one and a half. The flop comes 10 nine, 7 with two diamonds. And Zobian checks to Dyer, who bets 2.225 into 8.5. Now, this is a tiny bet. It might seem like a, a bad play, but I like it because... He's really making a bet that's proportional to his opponent's stack. And so whether Dyer has it or not here, he's making a, a bet that is leveraging his opponent's stack, not so much concerned about the size of the current pot. Um, as long as Dyer's willing to make that bet when he has it, as well as when he doesn't, I like the play. It's exploitable if he does this when he's bluffing, but he bets more when he's not. And I don't know. Only Dyer will know whether that's how he plays or not. Uh, Zobian check raises all in for the full $12.2 million. And Dyer folds his hand. So, guys, this is a, a non standard play, but I think it has a lot of merit. Things are different at the end of the World Series of Poker when you're getting close to the final table, uh, I've gotten fairly close myself a few times now, and I know that everyone plays differently than they might otherwise. Some people go absolutely crazy because the pressure gets to them and causes them to forget how to play cards, and other players uh, just become way more careful than they might otherwise. Either way, you need to be able to figure out who is in which category And who is still playing very, very well. Safe to assume somebody like Joe Catta is not going to blow a gasket just because he's here. Because here's a guy that's been here before and is going to be here again. He's that good. My best guess here is that Zobian has a monster. And Dyer has something like Ace King. Um... I don't know why I can put Dyer on Ace-King. He could really have a lot of hands. Uh, maybe it's just because he's in middle position and not making a play from the button. I give him a little more credit for having a hand. Uh, if he has like a black Ace-King, I think it's actually better to check than to bet $2.2 million into eight point five. But I don't really hate the play either because it's just, even if it works 20% of the time, He's making money from the play. So, and I think it will work that often. Based on Zobian's failure to shove pre-flop, it's either he doesn't know what to do, so he called, which we know calling as a compromise is never good, or he's slow playing a monster like pocket aces. I think that's what we have here is the monster. I don't think he would check-raise. Uh, bluff in this spot. But maybe he would with if he flopped a hand with good equity. Something like pocket eights, uh, with, which is a pair that could very well be good. But just in case, I also have an open ender. Uh, something like that would make sense to me. But I think more than likely, um, he's got a, a big hand like pocket aces. Or perhaps even a set of tens or nines. And just wants to get the check raise. In there, and he doesn't. He's kind of ambivalent as to whether Dyer calls with something like Queen Jack or folds a hand that has a decent chance of winning against him. Anyway, without being able to say for sure what anyone had in the hand, it's still a fun hand to examine for me because the dynamics of. The main event unofficial final table and the real honest to goodness main event final table bubble. It's not only the prestige of making the final table of the World Series of Poker main. It's also a very large uh, pay jump between 10th place and 9th place. Something like $400,000 difference. So with all of that in mind, I really like this play by Zobian. And I think it shows that you don't need a lot of chips to stand up to the bully. Pick the right spot and you can win a pot from a player who is out of line, which Dyer was clearly and unapologetically out of line for the last 48 hours of poker. So uh, it was fun to watch somebody get a little piece of him right there. So Dyer continued to uh, bully and take advantage of everyone being afraid to bust out right before the final table Um, for a while. He was fairly relentless, I would say. And again, I think that he used his stack well. He made aggressive plays without putting in a lot of chips or really ever risking his chip lead. Of course, many of you probably know that the way we got to our final nine was with Nick Mannion holding pocket aces when two of his opponents had pocket kings. And then he actually ends up starting the final table as the chip leader with Michael Dyer just behind him. Um, So we get down to nine and then I think the very first hand of play at the final table is an interesting one. The blinds are now 300,000, 600,000 with a 100,000 ante from each player. Uh, Of course, this year in the World Series of Poker, all the bracelet events will have the big blind ante. But last year's main event was not like that. We all had to ante every hand after level three, I believe. So uh, there is 1.8 million in the pot between the blinds and antis. And the short stack is well-known former final tableist Antoine Labatt. And it's folded to him in the low jack with King 10 offsuit. And he has 8 million in chips. So just about four and a half times the pot. So his M is four and a half. And, of course, I know a lot of you like to count big blinds, so he's got about 13 and a half big blinds. Uh, by any measure, Mr. Lebat, Monsieur Labatt, is in bad shape. He's one of the two players that held Pocket Kings versus Nick Mannion uh, and ended up giving him the chip lead just as we got to the final table. Now he's the short stack in the tournament. With nine players left. And if he shoves with King-10, he's got to get past uh, one, two, three, four, five opponents to increase his eight million stack all the way up to 9.8 million. Uh, Do you shove here with 13 big blinds and M of four and a half from this position? I think it's super close. It's a really, really tough decision, and Labat considered it for a while before he folded. Ask yourself, in his shoes, what is the worst hand you would shove folded to you in the low jack? So you've got to get through the high jack, the cutoff, the button, and the small blind and big blind. I think I would shove here, and the reason why is because the very first hand of the final table, I think players are going to be tight in this spot. You know, If the big blind wakes up with something like ace four, is he going to call me? Uh, He probably should, but will he? And that's where I think you can make some extra money. Uh, Of course, you have to be willing to take that risk. And I suppose Labatt figures he can find a better spot and maybe actually have uh, a better hand in a better spot But that will need to happen pretty soon because in just a few hands, he's going to be in the blinds himself. And then he's going to start losing chips very quickly. So it's a tough spot. Um, I think I would shove because it, it is the first hand of the final table. And I think that you can get a little bit more fold equity than you might otherwise have. Of course, if you run into a monster, you're going to have to play against a monster. But you block some monsters like kings and ace-king with your king-ten. So what about you guys? Do you shove here? And if not, what is the worst hand you would shove with this stack in this position in this tournament? Now, obviously, we're not going to review every single hand from the final table, but I do want to talk about hand number two from the final table because I found it very interesting. There's a lot to think about Um, In this one. So the action is folded to John Sin, who at the time had 37 million in chips, which by the way was good for third, uh, but it was a very distant third with the chip leaders having 114 and 109 million respectively. So Sin with 37 million you got to think to yourself, uh, you've got a lot of really short stacks below you. You might not want to get involved in any marginal spots just to wait for a few people to bust out first, right? Well, not John Sin. Um, He came here to play. And this hand really demonstrates kind of the eyes on the prize mentality rather than trying to climb the ladder and fold in marginal spots and try to let shorter stacks bust so that I can lock up X number of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I really respect the fact that he uh, plays this hand in the way that he does. I'm not going to tell you what our opponent has. I'm just going to tell you that John sin in the cutoff position, sorry, the hijack, definitely the hijack. He's two off the button in the hijack with the seven of diamonds, six of diamonds. Um, He's got 60, 61, 62 big blinds. Um, His M is about 20 and he opens to 1.3 million, uh, which I think a lot of us would do. But here's where it gets interesting because the action folds to the small blind, which is our chip leader Nick Mannion, who makes it three point five million, so at that point, the pot has six point three million, and the action folds back to sin, and it would cost him two point two million to call. so he's getting worse than three to one on a call, barely um he will have to play a pot against the chip leader and risk his third place position. I mean, if they play any type of substantial pot here sin is going to probably fall into fourth or fifth position at the final table. Um so we all know that we, everybody loves suited connectors and when you're relatively deep stacked with 60ish big blinds uh you know it's it's okay to take a flop even in a three bet pot generally speaking but how many of you would have folded in this spot and said, "You know what? I'm not going to uh, get involved in a in an inflated pot with a seven high against a chip leader who has three-bet me from out of the small blind, which generally shows strength, I think. You don't see a lot of players bluff, re-raising on the second hand of the final table of the main event with nothing. So Mannion says he has a hand, and in, sh- in Sin's shoes... Try to say that without getting tongue-tied. I would tend to believe him. Um, Getting about 3-1, to a little bit less, uh, I think calling is fine. But I wonder how many of us would actually do it in this position. So things are getting hot and heavy. And we see a flop. It comes king 8-6. And again, I didn't tell you guys what uh, the small blind has only that he has the chip lead with 117 million chips. It's King eight, six rainbow, nothing of our suit. So we have no backdoor draw. We do have bottom pair with the seven, six and Mannion fires. Three point seven million into the 8.5 million pot. Tough decision for johnson i think um many players would probably just go ahead and and get out of the way here look you've uh you've three bet pre-flop yeah i got caught a little piece of this bottom pair um but with the king high flop and no backdoor flush draw we do have a backdoor straight draw right obviously uh certain cards could give us a straight draw on the turn um that's a pretty minor consideration Uh, the price that I'm getting isn't terrible. It's a little better than three to one on a call now. Um, Yeah, it's a pretty close decision. And I think many of us would fold. I would probably fold in this spot. I may have even folded pre-flop, but I think I, I like to think I would have been able to make the call, but it's just, we're getting into murky waters and you would think that protecting my third place, chip position with so many short stacks remaining in the tournament including Labatt who only has 8 million uh, and is bound to go broke soon I might not want to get deeper into the mix here Uh, it's a tough decision and it takes a lot of heart to make a call like this Sin calls with bottom pair and we see a turn card which is the five of spades putting two spades on the board and giving us open-ended straight draw so now sin should feel a little better about his uh, little pair of sixes but he still can't be sure it's the best hand it's just now if it's if our hand is no good we do have outs to catch up Uh, at least eight of them possibly quite a few more and Nick Mannion checks now here's the power of being in position Um. If Nick Mannion had a big hand, like pocket aces, a set of kings, um, really anything huge, he would not be interested in checking this card with the board starting to straighten out a little bit, um, with the second spade, a minor consideration, but still something to think about, uh, a second spade hitting the board and just for value, Nick Mannion would want to put in a bet here, hoping to get called, if he had a big hand. His check shows a lot of weakness, in my opinion. I don't think many amateur players, as Nick Mannion is, and I think that Sin at this point knows that for sure, uh, I don't think many amateur players could check a monster here on this card. So we can rule out the biggest hands from his range. Uh, It's possible he would play a king this way and check over to us with a king. It's also possible he would check over to us with other hands that have us beat, which include queens, jacks and the like. Therefore, I think in Sin's shoes, I would bet my bottom pair or now it's second, third pair with uh, open ender. Because I think that my hand, my bet, could serve multiple purposes. Uh, for one, I might be able to get my opponent to fold a better hand that's actually beating me right now, and I can also get him to fold a hand like Ace Queen that has, you know, a decent number of outs against me. Uh, and I would prefer for those hands to fold because of my position in the tournament. So uh, I I think that Sin should bet, and I was happy to see that he puts in 5.7 into the 15.8 million pot or whatever it is, uh, and Mannion folds. So I like this hand a lot because it kind of sets the tone for Sin not saying, look, I know that I'm in third position chip-wise, Uh, But I'm not going to just sit around and wait for people to bust. I'm going to seize the moment when I have a moment to seize. And I'm not going to play scared. And part of that is he finished in 11th place back in 2016. So he's been here before. Uh, Sin and Kata have this kind of relevant experience. The rest of these players do not. So I feel like he trusted his read. Um as it turns out, Nick Mannion had ace-ten, which I think is quite literally the worst hand he's going to have when he three-bets out of the small blind here. Um, other players would have other hands, but I think that Nick Mannion with ace-nine in the uh, small blind or king-queen, even suited in the small blind, is not going to three-bet. He might make a mistake and call Um but I think he's usually just going to fold. Most players are very reluctant to get involved in pots from out of the small blind, even with hands that they should be happy to do so holding. So yeah, good on John Sin for uh, taking the bull by the horns, as it were, for not trying to ladder up, go from ninth to seventh, uh, really taking some risk here risking his third place chip position to get involved in a hand with a marginal holding seven, six that flops bottom pair. And he's rewarded for it uh, in this case, because he gets to play in position and that check on the turn pretty much is a give up. I would say 90% of the time from Nick Mannion. And there's no reason not to bet our pair of sixes. Love to get your thoughts on these hands as well. Guys, we will be continuing our look at last year's final table as we all uh, go to sleep every night between now and July with visions of making this year's main event final table uh, dancing in our heads. I want to thank you guys for listening. Definitely go back and listen to our recent episode with Alex Fitzgerald, the assassinato, as well as uh, a really entertaining episode we did recently with Andrew Brokus, and sign up for your Tournament Poker Edge membership. If you haven't done so already, just visit tournamentpokeredge.com. It's extremely affordable. Uh, about $20, 20 $30 dollars a month, depending on which payment plan you you go with uh, for how long you order the product. You can get access to all of the videos by all of our brilliant coaches and poker experts. Um, Casey Jarzebek, Daryl Jace. Andrew Brokus, Alex Fitzgerald, on and on and on. So you definitely want to do that. It is one of the best values that I know of in the poker world. So sign up for TPE. Don't wait. Get your chops up and get ready uh, for the big summer you want to have this year in Vegas at the World Series of Poker the venetian deep stack extravaganza the wind signature series and all of the very cutely marketed and named uh tournament series that are out there you want to be ready to play when you arrive in vegas this summer so for everyone here at tournament poker edge i'm clayton fletcher and thank you all so much for listening
0: Hold them like they do in Texas, please. Hold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. I Lucky and intuition, play the cards with babes to start. And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. I'll get a heart. Show her what Place. I wanna roll with her, that we will be. While little gambling is fun when you're with me. it. Russian roulette is not the same without a gun. And baby, when it's love, it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun. Oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh. whoa,